Hello and welcome to the April edition of The Crit. Uh, my name's Ollie Stratford, I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined by your other host, India Block. Hello, India. Hello. This is a special edition of The Crit. Uh, not ordinary business. This is a, a Milan special. Yeah, this is the Milan... De- This is Milan. (laughs) This is the Milan Design Week debrief. Yeah, and in design, we often assume everyone knows what Milan Design Mm, Week is mm -hmm. because it's such a big thing within the field, but you don't have to. There's no reason you should know. So we're going to give a quick explanation. Uh, Milan Design Week is probably the tentpole design week in the international design calendar. It's the biggie. It's one where people from around the world gather together to exhibit what they've been doing in the past year. Brands show new products. Brands also show installations. Independent designers show their work and exhibitions. Uh, Originally grew out of something called the Salone del Mobile, the furniture salon, uh, which was obviously an industry trade fair. Today, there's also the Fiore Salone, which is installations scattered around the city, more of a traditional design weekend. Those two things exist harmoniously in tension, hard, hard to say, but there's a there's an interesting mix there between commerce and curatorial is maybe the other side. The two C's. Yeah, I mean, Milan, Milan darling. Uh, I've only been twice, so it was definitely, I was on the side of being like, what is this? Uh, I've never been, I don't really know what goes on there. Um, as a sort of like more property architecture person, like Mippin or Venice were more my bag. But um, you've got more experience, so I feel you have to go first. How did this one stack up? Yeah, I think um, first thing we should say is Milan, like loads of design events, was um, paused as a result of the pandemic. Uh, In 2021, they did a small version of Milan, a mini Milan, And in 2022, it was uh, a more traditional Milan, but still considerably smaller. It also took place in June, whereas traditionally it takes place in April. So I I guess this year was the first time it was really back in force. And I have quite a... um, trying to think how to put this diplomatically, a complicated relationship with Milan. I think there are lots of aspects of it which are very admirable. It's clearly an important driver for the industry. You meet a lot of people out there. It's very good for finding out what people are doing and connecting with those who you don't get to speak to every day. Um, Also hugely commercial. It embodies a lot of the problems we face as an industry, this obsession with newness, this sense of overproduction, this profusion of stuff. And... I think what I'd say about this issue, this issue, this edition of Milan is it felt very much back in business, back to normal. And that was both pleasant in some ways to have that resumption of um, the positive aspects of it. But, you know, there were lots of aspects of the pandemic where people really spoke about we need to try and um, change the way we operate as a field and I, I wouldn't say there was much evidence of that. It, it felt very much like a traditional Milan. No real efforts to reduce the amount of consumption or production. And I mean, I think we'll come on to, as part of the podcast, some other perhaps troubling aspects of the field. But um, nice to have Milan back. But it didn't necessarily feel older and wiser for its time in the wilderness. Yeah, I mean, I don't have that context and I had only seen it for literally 48 hours during a press trip last year so this was my first full Milan as well as everyone's 
first uh, Milan back, as it were. Um, I mean, I think it's fun. Um, and it, I do really like getting to go out and meet people. Uh, I think, you know, even as journalists working in print, it it's good to have those uh, sort of like out in the real world interactions with people. The more of those, the better. I, I guess I haven't become quite as jaded by the excess yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But... Uh, yeah, I think you make a really good point that there was a lot of talk in design about how we were going to recalibrate our our attitude to exhibitions and be more sustainable. And that's kind of just gone out the window. Yeah. And these are themes that we'll return to throughout the episode. So just for your awareness, listener, we're each going to be offering a highlight from mm-hmm. the week and a low light and a couple of talking points that come out from around those. So... Let's get started. I think I'm up first, aren't I? So we're going to kick things off with my highlight. And I often find fairs quite dispiriting and design weeks quite dispiriting to go to because they very much are a reflection of the industry as it stands. You know, it embodies the preoccupations, the interests of that field, and that include the failings I mean a little bit like we talked about in the introduction that obsession with newness the desire to show when often there's no real need to exhibit something you're dispirited by the whole design world largely (laughs) no well I I get I, I guess these fairs they Desenio is we're quite focused on the sort of social impact of design I guess you know it's social ramifications it's political ramifications because of the nature of this being very much an industry event, I guess it does skew more towards the commercial side, I think would be fair to say. You do see some of the more social impact projects out there, but it's tilted very much towards, hey, we've got a new lamp. Do you like chairs? We've got some new chairs. It's it's that kind of thing. Reminds you of the filthy underbelly of the... The industry that you serve. Yeah, and I'm a dainty esteet who likes to keep my head in the clouds. <laughs> Just thinking about positive social impact. I, I don't want to go down into the factories and, and engage with the disgusting realities. Um, but I, I think one area where, where you do get a bit more um, that kind of optimistic side of design is uh, a lot of design schools go out for this event it's a really good showcase for design schools and students can show off what they do um, maybe get some attention helpful with their careers afterwards and I think what I like about it is you know when students go there they often show newer ideas it's their reflections on what design could or should be before they've been beaten down by crushing commercial realities And it's kind of fun because they often have a different perspective on things. They're not just trying to fit into existing paradigms. They're very much showing a slightly different perspective on design and trying to represent those younger, fresher points of view. Yeah, they're often free to be a bit more speculative. They haven't had an entire marketing team to corral their ideas into something that are... Do they have focus groups in design? This is what I'm imagining. <laughs> but like, they, they have the support of their institutions, which provide some financial backing to show some interesting work without the need to fit within a more traditional uh, commercial paradigm. And a whole number of schools go out there. So apologies to a lot whose work we didn't see. I'm sure they were super interesting too. But one that caught my eye was the display of Design Academy Eindhoven. Uh, did you see Design Academy Eindhoven's 
No, I didn't. But I am very excited that they, you know, dedicated it to the audio format. Yeah. The format that I'm very passionate about. <laughs> so Design Academy Eindhoven, uh, they did a radio station. Um, normally Eindhoven, they do a big exhibition in town. Uh, this year they didn't do that. I don't think they had something they wanted show. And there's politics around those exhibitions too, because it's which students' work gets represented, who gets to go and exhibit, who doesn't, how do you decide that? Bit of an ethical minefield. Um, so this year Eindhoven took a stand at Salone Satellite, which is the uh, emerging designers section of the Salone del Mobile trade fair. And Eindhoven has run, I think for a few years, this thing called Elevator Radio, which is a student radio station, which Eindhoven provides some funding to. And the idea is it's a place for students to, I mean, like you said, India, mess around with audio, try out what they can do in that format. What can they do within a design context over sound waves? (laughs) No, I like it though. I like it's kind of got like a pirate radio vibe i really enjoy that they are using a format it's not kind of pivot to video there were definitely some years where especially lots of media organizations would be running around trying to film everything um i like that they've done something that would probably be considered old school now yeah i think so so they they set up their radio station at the fair and the entire stand was made from materials they'd brought with them from the school, like reusing mm-hmm. parts of old exhibitions, uh, materials that had been donated. I think a company had donated some uh, textiles and fabrics to uh, hang in the stand. And it looked very chop shop. Like you said, it looked a bit like pirate radio. And the thing was, it looked amazing as a result. It looked so much more interesting than the super polished stands, which are all new and sleek and elegantly put together your eye was kind of immediately drawn to this station because it felt vibrant and exciting and that something was going on there, something a bit messy and fun. And they they basically did broadcasts throughout the week. They would invite people to come on the stand, take part in discussions about the state of contemporary design, um, what its failings are, new forms of practice, what people thought about the week. And I think that's kind of fabulous. Yeah, it's also a great way when you've got all those people, if they're in town, you might as well bring them together to have conversations yeah. and conversations that other people can listen to, not just private deals and private corners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's that's quite a nice side, I think, because a lot of younger designers certainly, I think, experience some guilt about the idea of producing, the idea of creating new things in a world which already has a super abundance of stuff. So if you want a presence at that week, why not do something a bit different like this? Why not say, okay, we're not going to just show work for the sake of it. We're going to facilitate conversations. And they they did a really nice job. Um, Should also flag up the work of Silvio Rebholtz, Apologies, I I might have mangled the pronunciation of that. Uh, But Silvio is a designer from Ecal, another very good design school in Lausanne. And I I think it's just a coincidence, but Silvio was doing something similar. He was doing interviews with people out at the fair. He'd built his own radio rig where he could walk along with them uh, on, on their way to the fair and interview them about their work, interview them about how... Younger designers can engage with the industry. I think he spoke with Jonathan Olivares, the new design director of Knoll, for instance. And I mean, a funny resonance that both schools kind of exhibited work like that. 
That's so cool. So that's like a steampunk vox pop machine. So he could wear his radio rig and broadcast as he like live yeah, interviews. Yeah, I've, I've seen some pictures of it. It's almost like a sort of um, roving coat stand, <laughs> but stacked with audio equipment. And yeah, again, a really nice way of engaging with that fair. It's um, an evolution of what he did as his graduate project called On the Way to Work With, where he kind of accompanied designers and creatives on their commute and used that as a chance to speak to them. But I, I think quite a creative response to the idea of a design week and quite a, quite a nice point of engagement. Yeah, and especially with students as well, whereas I feel that older generations can be very dismissive of the way that younger practitioners embrace social media mm. or use different platforms. But I think this really shows a sensitivity to the form that, you know, maybe more established designers have lost. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, on the other side, uh, uh, sort of last mention, if you, if you look at a more traditional, in some ways, student show, Eckel also did a really nice project called UFO Go, which... Um, we should d- disclose we were involved with uh, to an extent. We worked on a, a accompanying publication. Uh, do you want to explain what UFO Go was, India? So UFO Go, which I love the name. I don't know if we confirmed, but I think it's UFO Fogo, and Fogo is for Fogo Island, which is a little island off the coast of Canada, Newfoundland. Newfoundland, yeah, yeah. and. Uh, it's quite remote. They are looking at ways of living more sustainably, especially now that the fishing industry has changed. And they invited students from Ekal to come over and experience the island, see its landscape, its ecology, and come up with different proposals for speculative wind turbines. Yeah, that's right. The island is geographically, weather-wise, it's very well suited to wind turbines. It's windy. <laughs> Hell a lot of wind, yeah. They've got they've they've got the raw stuff. Um so what they don't have necessarily is this wider discussion around well how do wind turbines fit in with that environment? How can you make them more environmentally um, fitting, how can you make them culturally acceptable? So the students weren't necessarily like redesigning turbines themselves, that's sort of the work of engineers. But what they were doing was, could you make small design nudges to the ways in which these things work such that they would fit in, such that they become more acceptable, and then you can use that as um, a new source of power generation. And And some really interesting suggestions, I think, you know, from students questioning, well, why are these turbines always white? Could you could you do something with the colour of them that makes them fit in a bit more? The reason they're white is so the planes can see them. They don't get cra- <laughs> crashed into, but they did think of a smart way around the it. The found an interesting texture and angles. Yeah. Personally, I, I would keep them as visible as possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they I, I cannot stress enough they remain visible to aircraft but so some people playing around with things like that others thinking about well could they tie in more with building traditions on Fogo Island where historically a lot of the buildings there have been built on stilts and not had permanent foundations what are ways of anchoring a wind turbine in the landscape without requiring a huge concrete foundation for instance so some really nice things and I think what I liked about it is it's a very um Hardcore industrial design project, you know, you kind of can't get more hardcore than working on turbines in a way. 
Um, but with this element of speculation and whimsy, which you sort of want in a student project, like you want new ideas, you want different futures, but anchored in a really specific context. So every proposal had to abide by actual legislation around wind turbines. It had to engage with engineering criteria. All of their proposals were reviewed by structural engineers. And it was it, it was just very nicely done. And I think sort of what you want from weeks like this, you want to go somewhere and see new ideas and new ways of doing things um, and have almost maybe that slight utopian quality to it, but still very grounded, you know, not just totally pie in the sky type stuff. Yeah, I think it's a really good template for student projects as well. To You know, they can be absolutely fascinating, but quite divorced from reality, whereas this one is very firmly rooted in its location and in its practical applications. So that was my Milan highlight, uh, student work. The kids are all right. In this next section, uh, a very troubling story. We're going to be discussing an installation at Campo Base, which was one of the exhibitions hosted during the design week. Uh, A trigger warning, this considers uh, discussions of racism and bigotry. If you don't want to listen to that, I would suggest you skip this section. Okay, so Campo Base was an exhibition hosted during the week. It was a collection of installations from a group of different Italian architects, each responsible for a different area, all under the curatorship of Federica Sala. As one of those installations was called Il Collezionista, this was the work of architect Massimo Adario, and that was a room in which the centrepiece was a large glass vitrine in which were included a number of glass figurines. The premise of the show was that this was the collection of a fictionalised collector. Uh, The works were actually taken from Massimo's own private collection. And The issue with this display was that a number of those figurines were deeply racist. They were glassworks produced in Italy during the 1920s, which drew on extremely ugly and hateful stereotypes around uh, black people, around Asian people, around Pacific Islanders. Um, This exhibition received quite a lot of press attention during the week, uh, largely positive, I have to say until on Instagram, a number of people, chief amongst them the designer Stephen Burks, uh, the um, design PR Jenny Wen, and Anna Karnick and Wava Carpenter of Anava Projects highlighted some of the issues around these figurines and raised questions as to why they were bi- why this display was being celebrated. Indra, I think we have to say neither of us actually visited Campo Base during the week. We haven't seen this firsthand. This no, was some... we didn't see this. This was brought to our attention but they had received a lot of positive uncritical press coverage prior to this um so doubly troubling that it wasn't picked up yeah in easter was billed as a and this is a quote a utopia of design and offering visitors a moment of respite reflection and calmness I i don't think there's any huge need to go into why these figurines a racist. They are the product of racism when they were produced. And I think exhibiting them in this way simply echoes and amplifies that racism. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, as to white journalists, like we can, we'll get into this more and the 
quite troubling response from you know the architect's response to this um these were pieces that were created with racist intent they are meant to be stereotyping degrading painting these people as other they were produced during a time in response to social anxiety about greater contact with people from other cultures you know to put them into context they would be similar to gollywog dolls in the uk or mammy jars in the us Mm. um these you know are objects that have never had any different meaning Mm. and to collect them and then not only to collect them privately and not just you know there are some people who collect them in order to destroy them or to take them out of collectors hands Mm. um or to educate people about uh the context in which they were produced but these were collected uncritically and then chosen for display Mm. uncritically and I, i think displaying them within the context of a commercial design week is is an outrageous thing you know that's stripped of any kind of criticality it's stripped with any engagement with those legacies of racism um it's an it's an appalling thing and i'm actually going to read the a statement that Stephen kindly provided us with because Mm -hmm. as you say india he was the person who drew it to our attention and um saw these firsthand so I'm, i'm going to give a little bit of time to that so Stephen said, the racist figurines on display during the Milan Furniture Fair last week at the Campo Base exhibition, curated by Francesca Sala and collected and presented by Massimo Adario, a reminder to us all that design does not exist in a vacuum. Design is popular culture and our actions shape attitudes and opinions that reflect where we are as a society. The unfortunate message this exhibition has sent is that people of non-European origin do not have the right to exist outside of a Eurocentric, often racist, frame of reference. We must acknowledge that the historical objects on display in the exhibition originated from violence. We must understand how their creation in the 1920s was derived from an unequal system of cultural exploitation, borrowing directly from European colonial practices of dehumanising othering. At Stephen Burke's Man Made, uh, which is Stephen's studio, we believe everyone is capable of design and that all people should have equal access to its transformative potential. As designers, we must call out all symbols of oppression and discriminatory practices, tokenism and stereotyping that continue to take place within our field. Which I think is exceptionally well put. Yeah, it's a really excellent statement and... And I, th- I think it's really hard that Stephen had to be the one to bring this to people's attention when he comes from the background that was being targeted by these pieces. I think one thing which has come from this, which is deserves credit, is uh, Stephen uh, Jenny Wynn, who uh, is a PR in New York, uh, Anna Karnick and with a carpenter and of another project are the people who've really pushed this over social media, highlighting mm-hmm. it, spreading the word that this is unacceptable, challenging the positive press coverage that was given to this exhibition originally. And I think they're very keen. Obviously, the installation itself, it is right that we condemn what happened there, but to, to an extent, that individual case 
is is not the priority. What they're what they're interested in more generally is the way in which this example highlights ongoing failures to properly diversify the design industry, and a failure to grasp how the design industry as it stands ends up frequently reinforcing existing bigoted power structures. And I think that's very admirable that they're using this as a chance to progress that conversation and and, and speak about it more generally. Now, I should clarify that Desenio has spoken to some of the people involved in that insta- uh, in that installation who have provided some context behind why they made the decisions they do. They did. We have made a decision as a publication that we're not going to share those statements. Um, from our perspective, the show itself was clearly racist um, and there's no defence for displaying objects in a format that simply reproduces and supports that racism. Um, and one of the reasons we're not sharing those statements is it feels more important to make the broader point that there's no place at the industry's leading annual event for work that exoticizes, demeans and discriminates. Um, and I think the fact that this has happened shows there's still a very long way to go within the field. Yeah, and I I really appreciate um, Stephen and Denny's kind of generosity, I suppose, when it comes to this. Like other publications have published the apology. Um, it's not a great apology and there's a lot of claims of ignorance, of preserving history of wanting to open a dialogue which you know I think in 2023 like asking people from marginalized backgrounds to explain to you why something you've done is hurtful is not okay and just needs to be scrapped completely from the kind of apology handbook I also like this isn't the first time this has happened this isn't just like oops we slipped up um, and, you know, it's especially Italian brands that have done this. Um, we've had Prada. They put out a whole collection several years ago that included sort of caricatured blackface uh, designs. There was the Gucci sweater a few years ago. These are conversations that have like come up again and again. There was Grace Coddington of Vogue with her Mammy Jar collection. Um, we seem to be going round in circles where these things pop up in the wider design context. I don't think, you know, if you are paying attention, you can ignore them. So, yeah, I do think that unpicking those power structures, thinking about who's in the room, both on the side of the curation side and also who's going to be viewing them is true. I just I just don't know how you could have missed like mm. even the past three years of conversation. I think the last thing I'd like to say about this is I, I think there's something instructive about linking this to Stephen Bucks's wider work. Uh, Stephen's a really interesting designer and he has spoken a lot about the need for design to be more than simply producing for the sake of producing. That's the subject of the piece he has in the most recent issue of Desenio. And his argument is that design is a form of communication, which is something we speak about as an industry a lot, that objects have power, they're a way of understanding the world, they represent and reflect different aspects of the world. And if design is to have meaning, 
which I think it does, then we really need to think about that meaning. Who's it for? Who does it serve? Who's it allowed to communicate through? And this experience of, in Milan, okay, in an extremely negative way, I think has stressed the insight and importance of Stephen's point that design does have tremendous communicative power. And here that power, really tragically, is very destructive. Um, but as a field, if we believe in that power and if we believe it can be applied positively, then we really need to make sure that design is communicating the right things. So my highlights, I cheated a little bit and I picked two. Uh, Paolo Navoni's Take It or Leave It, which was produced in collaboration with The Slowdown. And then Assembling the Future Together, which was uh, the IKEA presence. Okay, so on the surface, two quite different things. Mm -hmm. One from a big corporation, IKEA. Mm-hmm. Um, Paolo Navone, independent designer. Yeah, um, one Scandinavian, one Italian. Uh, so I think these both tie in quite nicely to what you were talking about with the radio show and this idea of reuse, of maybe uh, highlighting things from archives, not necessarily all about the creation of new stuff, although we can get into that. Take It or Leave It was a lottery that invited people to win one of Paula's possessions that she collected over <laughs> okay. a lifetime. Uh, why is she giving away her possessions? She wants a fresh start. Is the um, slowdown pressuring her? <laughs> no, no, no. In fact, uh, she approached uh, Spencer Bailey, uh, co-founder of The Slowdown, former editor of Surface Mag, uh, last year and said she wanted to just give them all away in one big supermarket sweep style. Okay, which is interesting because in design we talk a lot about the collection of objects mm-hmm. and the presentation, but not so much on how we get rid of them and how we part from objects. But this, these aren't um, objects that are necessarily things she used in her daily life. Okay, so it's not like her bed, her chest. It's not like she's clearing out her apartment. I think she still has all of her white goods, essentially. (laughs) Uh, She may need some more plates and cups and big spoons. Uh, But these are pieces that she was collecting with an eye that there was something about them that would inform her practice. So a way of making a colourway, a use of material. These are all things that she has incorporated into her work so it's like ephemera she's collected over the course of her mm, career mm-hmm. just objects that have caught her eye for whatever reason yeah and, and that now she she's has, parting with those yeah she's worked through what they gave her and while a lot of them do have stories attached to them which they have documented um the sodan and their team documented every single piece they were assigned a number they were um curated and displayed and they were actually going to follow up with everyone who won something to find out what they're doing in their new life so this is quite a a long and lengthy project they've not just vanished into the ether right but i think for for navone they had given her what she needed and Hmm. i can kind of imagine it like sitting in a room being surrounded by lots of loud voices wanting a fresh canvas um, you know, uh, which I think is very exciting, especially for architecture and designer in their 70s to go, okay, mm. I want to like begin looking for more inspiration. Yeah, yeah. And I want to clear this kind of archive. I'm not just going to live there 
amongst my memories. Mm. Which is not a bad thing. I think within this film, we do have a tendency to fetishize objects and fetishize archives. And you're right, those things have a lifespan as well. And perhaps it is interesting to see someone part from there. So how does it work? You, you, They're all numbered. If, mm-hmm. if you take part, you get a number and then... So they're that all numbered, object? and then um, you queued up at the venue, which was Otto Studio, and um, there was a kind of big tub. It was sort of like, did you ever do like a tombola or a church fete? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so yeah. you like stick your hand in. And I, those I grew the... up a British child. Of course I've uh-huh. done a tombola. Although, actually, <laughs> of course I was a regular church fete. I was fete. like, oh, tombola sounds like an Italian word. It was actually an Italian board game that's closer to bingo. Oh, did not know that. I know. Hmm. Um, and then you pick out like a little gum plastic clear gumball and inside is like a little raffle ticket that corresponds to the number of the item on the shelves. So what did you win? <laughs> okay, so the rules were no redraws, no take backs. Yeah, rightly so. It's uh, it's a lottery. I know, but then what when did you, you get I I won the book that Paula and Spencer wrote together. Absolutely rubbish. Worst possible win <laughs> object. <laughs> I do know that's also I'm sure the book is excellent. But I would have liked to add your like, object. Everyone would be Paula. underwhelmed yeah, by that. Yeah. One thing I really did want to win were these gorgeous silver inflatable angel wings. But alas, someone else won them. I mean you could probably just buy some on AliExpress. I I have looked for some. None of them look as cool as that. Um Okay. Yeah, so this was part first part of this highlight. So some interesting, some interesting things around giving things away, mm-hmm. as you say, Generosity, our relationship with older objects. The stories that they hold. Not traits I associate with Ikea. So how, mm-hmm. how are you linking mm-hmm. this to mm-hmm. Ikea's okay, display? So the Ikea one, I was, I was prepared to hate it, but I have to admit they won me around. They had taken over this space, the Paglioni Visconti. They had really, at one point, I was like, oh no, have I accidentally just directed myself to an Ikea store? Because they had covered the entrance in like their bright yellow signature colour. And then inside was mm. rows of shelves that you kind of walked around in a big loop. Okay. Like an Ikea store. Um, but they had a really interesting display um, because it's also 80 years since Ikea was founded. Is it really? I know. And they had pieces from the archive so they actually have a uh ikea museum in almhult yeah They're... they do yeah I've, uh, I've never been but i've heard actually very good oh things goodness, that it's uh, quite interesting now that i've seen this and they had pieces from the museum and they had put them on display but kind of like they would have been displayed on the shop shelves okay. um except obviously all like jumbled up in terms of eras um or like on a chronological time frame but mm. sort of next to different pieces uh they'd put the original price tags on them so uh-huh. you could have seen what they would have cost at the time they are now going to auction them off at their milan store and i imagine they're going to go for a huge amount of money because they were really beautifully made mm. like there was some really stunning craftsmanship especially in the kind of like early mid-century pieces which kind of makes me think a bit more about this movement towards like part of the reason people are attracted to vintage items is just the quality of craftsmanship is often better especially when it comes to kind of mass-produced objects that ikea made popular so is that why it was nice because they just displayed the archive this is all kind of to promote their 
new collection. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, called, <laughs> and I don't know, their new collection, I don't know how to pronounce it, Nitil Verkad. Um, so they've gone back through the archive, found some cool vintage pieces, and they've reissued them in modern colorways. And I was like, this is this is sneaky, this is crafty, this is trying to get ahead of that vintage market and be like, why buy vintage when you could buy bright new? And also we've done them in like all of these fabulous colours. Unfortunately, they had picked really good colours. Oh, so it really, worked. It, it immediately it, I hit I, home They had my number. They had that, um, what's it called? Like digital lavender. They had a really nice orange range. Yeah, they yeah. were really cool. They also had like, you could go to the end and like buy some of these candlesticks that they were selling in like the kind of Ikea yeah, yeah. way where you like go right at the end of the store. They had a cafe in the middle where no meatballs, no dime bar cheesecake, unfortunately, but they were doing lingonberry spritzes. So a little Swedish twist on the Aperol. They really, I, I they had met the brief. I do, I do like uh, Ikea's unlimited refill policy on the lingonberry. <laughs> I've, I've, uh, I've hit that pretty hard in the past. I don't know if it was unlimited refills on the spritz. I think that could have been a recipe for disaster. But... <laughs> so, I, I mean... I. Okay, okay, well, production of new things, even if they're archive pieces, it, it doesn't affect uh, the environmental impact because you're still making and so on. But I think there is something to be said for looking back into the archives mm. and seeing, mm-hmm. well, what do we already have? What could we reuse? Is there really a need to create something entirely new if we actually already have these projects which scratch that itch? That That's not a bad way of doing things. And it it is interesting to see how small the changes can be to nudge something into feeling contemporary right mm-hmm. sticking a different color on something sometimes is enough to revitalize uh, a thing you don't always have to go right starting entirely from the drawing board what's the new design we're going to do that's i, I think yeah, there is something true. contemporary You're and interesting me in think that about approach. it in a different way that it's kind of a different type of sustainable practice that you know, if something was designed once and it works well and people like it, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If they can be small material tweaks mm. or manufacturing tweaks or colour tweaks, then mm. it can still fit within your daily life. I guess it just depends on how it fits into the wider business model, right? It's to be applauded mm. when companies do this. We're looking back in the archives. But if that's paired with we're still producing a load of new ones and mm. different designs at the same time, then it doesn't really make a difference. But it sounds interesting. So two uh, two, two fairly thought-provoking displays there. Mm, yeah, two new old things. Yeah, so my low light is more of a kind of mm, general miasma of discussion that was hanging over the fair. What's your low light? A general miasma (laughs) of discussion. (laughs) A miasma is haunting Milan of gentrification anxiety. Oh, sure. Yeah. What we're going to call it. Um, Milan has quite a well documented gentrification crisis. So there was a lot of conversation generated by a letter to the editor that was published in the Architects newspaper about Alcova, which is a temporary space that exists as part of the Fura Salone, a sort of satellite exhibition that um, started in 2018. It moves around a lot. This is not a new problem for Milan. It's not necessarily 
entirely Design Week's fault. Uh, the city in general is undergoing a lot of redevelopment. There are these regeneration schemes that are massive double-edged swords. Property prices are going up. Residents and artists are being pushed out of traditionally working-class neighbourhoods. Um, but the Design Week is undeniably part of that mechanism. I mean, you were saying in the introduction about how much of a central fixture it is mm. on the calendar and how everyone comes to town for, you know, one, two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I think Alcova is a really good example of that. So this was launched by Joseph Grima and Valentina Chufi. And it's it's it, it's a venue which in some ways has done a lot of good. It had a reputation for being a cool place to display, right? Where more off-piste, smaller, younger designers could show their work. And the reason it was good is those people, if they were exhibiting on their own, would probably not get very much attention, right? But because they were looped under this bigger banner, people got very excited about Alcova. And so they came and saw people who would otherwise... Um, probably operate under you know something of something of a shadow (laughs) that's a really bad way of putting it Uh, not get as much focus on them I Mm -hmm. guess and the way in which Alcova did that it got that reputation was I think as you said it, it found interesting venues it found abandoned crumbling factories I think it was in a hospital at one point an old one quote abandoned unquote well this is the issue is the issue yeah um i mean these sites are i guess old industrial would be perhaps a bit more Mm. accurate um they do look really good they're very nice backdrops i would say actually the most instagrammable site which again will speaks a lot to the kind of slightly queasy nature of this well this Um, year it's a former abattoir right but in something of a ruined state i would say yeah yeah i mean these are not I mean, people were living there, but they weren't livable. These are places that have been left by either the state owners or private owners to enter a state of disrepair. Um, Alcova was founded in 2018. It was first based in an old pastry factory for a couple of years. Then it was an old military hospital. And as you said, it's in an old abattoir this year. Mm. Um, So the piece in the Architects newspaper was titled... It's not the snappiest title, but it does it does include a lot. Alcova, a temporary design exhibition in Milan, takes place within a wider context of real estate speculation. Indeed it's prob- it does. Probably a little bit of an understatement, yeah, I say not like, the snappiest <laughs> of titles. I know, I'm like... I'm not one of the worst titles ever committed to print. <laughs> not, one, not to throw shade at another It's a great piece, though, I should say. It's, it's, really it's a very great. well like, done honestly, article. I think everyone should go read it. And it was actually written in response to a piece that was published in another um, sort of design title, Dazeem. This was an interview with the Alcova organisers, so Joseph Grima and Valentina Chufi. And they touched upon this issue of gentrification because, you know, this art washing is a practice that happens um, where places, their profile is raised by the presence of artists and culture and design. Hmm. This is sort of a kind of design washing but they said they avoid gentrification by moving around something that bagnato kind of said i don't think that's true and i think you're eliding the issue here yeah it's 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 a slightly tricky thing because um 
I, I, I think Bagnato is correct. Clearly, moving around doesn't prevent that issue of gentrification. There's still huge focus pushed on these spaces. They become very desirable. They become very uh, desirable to developers. At the same time, I, I know... I think what Joseph and Valentina are getting at, that by moving around it perhaps reduces that risk. I think they just overstated it. And, you know, that's easily done in interviews. I don't think it's a totally ridiculous thing, what they said, that by not basing themselves in one place all the time, they're, they're trying to do something about that. But he's clearly right to point out that it doesn't work, that gentrification process still operates. Yeah, I mean they're looking they're looking for the same things that property developers are looking for at the end of the day, like a big empty space where you can host yeah. a lot of people yeah. um, that with good transport links, um, but also not <laughs> expensive to like hire out and you know something that has some infrastructure built in because you know they not only hosting all of the designers, they're hosting all of the people that have got to be there. They've got to put in toilets, they've got to put in all their bars. Um, however, uh, Bagnato really um beautifully and again like people should go and read the piece because i'm just going to give a very potted history of what the abattoir used to be um but it actually is part of kind of milan's long history of squatting that dates right back to the 1970s and uh it was squatted and occupied by artists by activists it had um it wasn't like one of the more politically inclined squats they were uh big on the underground music scene there was also a really big resident lgbtq Mm. uh plus collective that was based there and then um they also then that community grew to involve um homeless people and asylum seekers there was a healthcare center that was based there then you know and this isn't connected to alcova at this point alcova we should stress did not kick these people out yes yeah, yeah the city of milan was already the wheels were in motion um, prior to the pandemic. They tried to sell it for like 22 million euros. The city assembly blocked them. So the city shut down the healthcare centre in 2020. And then unfortunately, Italy is moving quite far to the right. But it became a target because the homeless people and the asylum seekers were living there, which is really unfortunate. And um, so there was a competition to redevelop the site that was bankrolled by, um, you know, a real estate fund that's backed by Italian banks. Uh, the framework of holding this uh, competition was backed by um, this city redevelopment uh, scheme from the American billionaire Michael Bloomberg. And the winning master plan was by Snowhetta, who are like a big, massive uh, architecture firm that's quite firmly embedded in the design scene. Um, you know, the writing was on the wall, I guess. The activists left towards the end of 2022 and then riot police were brought in to evict the asylum seekers. And I think Banyato really highlights that there, this history of um, the building that was called Macau by its occupants um, wasn't very visible in Alcova. Yeah, I think he's done excellent work to flag all of that up and the tendency with Alcova and lots of temporary spaces like this in design is we're all immensely attracted to these old industrial buildings. People love how they look, right? That's the central draw of them. I think he highlights really well, these places aren't blank spaces. They have a history just because they don't any longer have that original industrial uh, purpose and might not have had it for some time. It doesn't mean people weren't using them in the in the interim. 
And I, th- I think it's, it's a very good call for us to reflect a little bit more about that and to, and to think about the substance of these places more than just the aesthetic and how they look. And India, I think I think you rightly flag up, Alcova is not to blame for this, what, what's happened there. You know, it, it, it's part of gentrification, of course. So many things are. It's, it's not unique in that. But I, th- I think it could have been a good thing. And I, I actually wonder if they may end up doing this in future editions. Maybe at the entrance to that space, Joseph Greamer is an excellent curator. So is Valentina. Maybe there could be some kind of display which tackles that social history of the space a little bit more that provides some of that context. It doesn't resolve everything, but at least then that history doesn't feel as if it's being elided or neglected. I think um, Andrea did very well to highlight that this was just absent from the site. So that's yeah. maybe a point of reflection for future. What ways would there be to get that back into the site a little bit more? Or are there places where you can support the community, a community that is still there, that you can help them defend their space? I mean, I get Milan being already quite a redeveloped city. That might be harder, but I've certainly been to other cities that have managed to, um, you know, use this, a space that is... Uh, evocative mm-hmm. while supporting the residents um, rather than looking for somewhere that's empty. But I mean, we need to be transparent here. Desenio was one of the organisations that took part in Alcova. We hosted a pair of talks in the space and our reasons for doing so, I think, were the same as more or less everyone who exhibits there. Of the various venues during Milan, Alcova has been, uh, in recent years, a really good home for and um, a champion of more critically engaged forms of design practice, as well as smaller, less heralded studios. It's done, I think, a lot of good in that respect, and it meets a clear need within the design world. Um, I didn't actually know about that history around the site prior to exhibiting there, (laughs) which is probably telling in itself but I think we would choose to exhibit there again because the platform itself is very good you know Alcova isn't the main driver of the issues being described but it has that fiddly task of having to think about how it can sensitively and responsibly fit in in relation to those issues of development while still meeting the need that it does To me, the challenge that Andrea has highlighted is that meeting that need in the best possible way remains a work in progress, right? No one has the answer at present because it's really, really difficult. Uh, These things don't have a blank state to work from. Sorry, (laughs) these things don't have a blank slate to work from uh, because cities are very rich in their conflicting histories and trying to stage a temporary platform within that context is extremely difficult. So I think that is, it goes back to your initial unease with the fair. Like this is Mm. a pop-up. We're only there for a week. Um, Milan has like 18,000, I think, Airbnbs. Mm. We stayed in Airbnbs. 
uh, full disclosure, um, which, you know, has also comes with a lot of attendant problems where, where the money's going and people being able to afford to live in their own city. Yeah, it, it's an absolutely vital issue. And I'm very interested to see how it might be factored into next year's edition of Alcova, uh, presuming they run again, which I, I think they will, um, because knowing the two curators a little bit, I think both Valentina and Joseph are fascinated by these issues too and will want to reflect on them. Um, So I think what Andrea has published is a very insightful critique and to be honest, I think it's one that Alcova itself will probably see as being valuable uh, because it's both a point of reflection for the platform's own work um, as well as a consideration that all exhibitors have in terms of how their single week of display during uh, Milan Design Week uh, connects to those year-round realities of the city. And they have a delicate balance to strike because they obviously want the city to let them to use these spaces to offer this platform to less kind of visible designers. So it is often a sort of Faustian pact that creatives have to sign in order to get their work seen. Well, that brings us to the end of our very partial summary of Milan. Two highlights, two lowlights. But I think that's perhaps quite a nice way of doing it, you know? This thing is so huge, there's no way you can cover all of it or offer something that's comprehensive. These are just a couple of the things that stood out to us. Yeah, we really always want to get away from that idea of, like, the top things list or who is crowned the, like, winner of Milan, which I have seen some other headlines trying to work out, you know, what is, (laughs) who is, who won, who is the best, what was the thing that you should feel really bad that you didn't see, whereas I think it's, I mean, you're going to exhaust yourself if you try to see everything. Yeah, there's some interesting topics that I think spread out from beyond just the single week itself. Yeah, and we have a couple of uh, roundups from our time in Milan available mm-hmm. on the website. So if you do want to know a little bit more about what we saw and some further points of reflection, do visit desenojournal.com to learn more about that. In the interim, we will be back next... In the interim? It's completely the wrong phrase. <laughs> Meanwhile, we will be back next month with a more regular episode of The Crit, but... In the interim, if you'd like to stay up to date with what we're doing, you can find us on social media. We are at Desenio Journal, or you can email us at thecrit at desenyojournal.com. You can also buy our new edition of Desenio, uh, number 35, which 35. is available uh, online, subscription, and all good and tasteful newsstands. And we have a newsletter. We do have a newsletter. To. I'm sorry, so I, want, I wondered why you were staring at me. I was like, <laughs> we do have a I was like, are you trying to get me to wrap it up? Or shall I just say there's so many things you can contact us on? Yes, the newsletter. Subscribe to that as well. It's you great. can access that on our website. It's called Input Output and is perhaps the most convenient way to stay up to date with Desenio's news. We will see you next month. The Crit is presented by